episode 389, the clapback when hospitals cannot constrain their own prices. Today, I speak with Mike Thompson. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. For the past few shows and in a few coming up, we are circling our wagons around a theme. In healthcare in this country, there are two teams. One team is employers, taxpayers, patients, those trying to keep healthcare prices down. Then on the other team, we have those looking for healthcare prices to continue to go up, meaning, as just one example, some health systems and some hospitals. There was a New York Times article recently, and Peter Hayes wrote an interesting comment about it on LinkedIn. He wrote, This article is troubling on so many levels and clearly demonstrates that patient health and well-being are not the top priority of many in healthcare leadership in our hospitals. Unfortunately, it is much more about patient revenue than patient health. The nonprofit status of our health facilities is a huge hidden tax and wealth transference from every taxpayer that is estimated to be about $39 billion annually. Link in the show notes to the Not Paywalled article. It is my gift to you. Look, for sure, not talking about everybody in healthcare leadership here, and increasingly, I'm kind of thinking, we need to maybe have like more than one word for hospitals and their leadership, because lumping them all together into a homogenous blob is really unfair to those rural and safety net organizations contending with all kinds of adversities, which is very, very different in circumstance to those so-called well-resourced hospital chains in suburban markets really raking in the cash and virtue signaling in very well-resourced press campaigns. And the irony of this whole thing is that a reason hospitals that want to get away with doubling down on profit-centric business models is actually their nonprofit status. This is a major loophole. If you are a nonprofit, you get to be excluded from some of the powers of the FTC, for example. But then there's also the lack of financial discipline, as Mike Thompson puts it in the show today. These nonprofit organizations have never had to run efficiently. They have never been asked to justify the new building or the other ads to their infrastructure that ultimately increase their cost of doing business in ways that on the whole might not benefit patient care. And I say might not benefit patient care fairly confidently because there is absolutely no correlation between high prices and high quality in healthcare. In fact, it can just as easily be the opposite. But if you overbuild and you buy too many MRI machines or whatever, then you gotta feed the beast. And then the downward spiral starts and the anti-competitive, financially toxic behavior really kicks into high gear, which again is tough to regulate because our laws and legislation expect nonprofits to you know, <laughs> behave like nonprofits. Today, I am thrilled to speak with Mike Thompson, who is the CEO and president of the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchasers. Interestingly, Mike is an actuary by background, and I'm sure that that has come in handy as more and more data is becoming available for purchasers and also regulators. 
The National Alliance has created a playbook, link in the show notes, to help employers get a fair price from hospitals. Also in the show notes, I have written out in a very condensed form the five strategies that are in that playbook and that we also talk about in the show today. One point that Mike makes very clear is that if nonprofit hospitals cannot remain true to their mission, and if they are also not subject to market dynamics, that's a lose-lose for their communities. At that point, a very viable option is to regulate them like utilities. This is also what I talk about next week with Chris Skizak and Gloria Sachdev. The sad part about this whole thing is that hospitals and communities really should be sitting on the same side of the table working together to improve the health and well-being of their communities. And that should include, according to me at least, keeping financial toxicity in check, especially just (laughs) given everything we know for sure about how financial toxicity negatively impacts patient health. Oh, hey, here's the thing. Turns out I had COVID when I recorded this show. So yeah, Mike deserves a little extra kudos for very eloquently just going with it when occasionally my questions sort of ended without, you know, (laughs) actually asking a question. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Mike Thompson, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Glad to be here, Stacey. So today we are talking about hospital prices and regular listeners of this show are going to have a firm bead on the impact of too high hospital prices. If you haven't already, for sure, you could listen to the show with Cora Opsahl or the one with Wayne Jenkins or Meryl Guzner or Peter Hayes for a deep dive into this. But just Real quick level set, why should an employer, uh, employer health plan, be concerned about how much hospitals in their area are charging? Well, it turns out that hospital spending is by far the biggest part of healthcare spend for employers or health plans for that matter. It's close to 50% of the spend when you consider all the pieces they control, inpatient, outpatient, and increasingly some of the drug spend as well. That would be fine if we were comfortable that we were consistently getting the services we needed and we were paying a fair price for the services we needed. What's become increasingly apparent because of market dynamics or lack of market dynamics, you can't take that for granted. That in spite of the fact that prices are negotiated between health plans and hospitals, Oftentimes, the prices that are being negotiated don't seem aligned with what a fair price should be for the services being provided. So this is actually a big point of contention, this fair price. If I was going to ask a hospital what they felt the fair price is, I'm confident that they would probably say the price that they're charging. So how are hospitals themselves quantifying fair price or their prices? Well, it's probably not fair to say every hospital is doing the same thing in terms of how they're setting prices. In fact, we we actually see a lot of variation. But in a normal market condition, you would expect the prices would reflect the cost of providing the goods with some sort of margin. And certainly that where there are peer institutions, that for the same services, they would charge roughly the same price. Maybe there's a little give and take one place for another, but for the most part, they'd be charging roughly the same price. What we find is neither of those premises are common in most markets. In fact, the markups from what they need to provide the service seem extraordinary. And then even if you were to compare 
prices among hospitals in a market, you could see one hospital charging twice as much for the same services than another hospital, including a peer hospital with similar quality and similar overall value. And so the question, I think, comes down to how can that be in if, in fact, we're paying a fair price? I think it, it, we're not paying a fair price is the end game. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, if you have the same service, and a wildly different price point between peer hospitals, that would likely be a clue that somebody in in that mix isn't quite sure what potentially their costs are. Hospitals haven't been known to do cost accounting particularly well. So maybe that's an underlying factor here that if a hospital isn't doing cost accounting, then how do you even know how much the cost of a particular service is? Well, and I think some of what has happened is that there's been very little, if any, constraints on the commercial side of the business for hospitals. Clearly, Medicaid essentially establishes what they will pay and that's what they pay. Medicare has established what it will pay, and that's what they pay. But on the commercial sector, it seems to be a blank check, at least as many of the hospitals have operated. And certainly when purchasers, employers, and health plans have insisted on having kind of everybody be in the network, they have have you over a barrel. And some have not taken advantage of it. You can see examples where hospitals are in fact charging a reasonable markup from what things cost. But there's too many examples where you're seeing hospitals are charging more because they can. And with those excess monies, they're spending the money in different ways. They're buying up practices, they're building new wings, and frankly, they're delivering a lot more to their surpluses. And all of that has not been constructive and frankly is leading to a lot of the affordability crisis. Well, as you had said, when there's a lack of market dynamics and when you also, I was talking with Brendan Bilberry this morning. He was talking about hospitals from an anti, you know, an FTC standpoint. And one of the reasons why the FTC is a little bit hamstrung regulating some of these hospitals is because nonprofits were never expected to behave using some of the ruthless tactics that for-profit businesses were expected to behave in. And it sounds like that same same way of thinking not only helped them consolidate and, and do some of the things that they're doing in order to diminish the market dynamics in their favor, but then also it enables you to raise prices or charge prices that may be excessive. And there is no discernible difference between for-profit and non-profit hospitals in terms of their pricing behaviors. That Concern is one that really makes one wonder if the market has evolved in a way that these essential services are pricing irresponsibly, how do we bring rigor back into the market? Well, that is a perfect tee-up to NASHP. NASHP is the National Academy for State Health Policy, and they are an organization, a not-for-profit organization that advocates for policies and develops model legislation for policies that can be administered at the state level. But in this instance, they've actually stepped in to do some really fundamental analysis looking at hospital cost structures. It's really enabled us to better understand not just hospital prices, but hospital margins on those prices. They've developed what we refer to as the Nashby commercial break-even. 
And you would think that the Nashby commercial break-even would tell you what price is needed to cover the cost of an admission, and that would actually be wrong. It actually covers much more than that. It actually covers any shortfalls that a hospital might experience on Medicaid, any shortfalls they might experience on Medicare, any shortfalls because uncompensated care. All these other ancillary elements are considered in a Nashby commercial break-even so that if a hospital actually got paid at the Nashby commercial break-even expressed as a percentage of Medicare, that hospital should break even. And of course, you can add a reasonable margin, 10 or 20% to that Nashby commercial break-even, but it comes nowhere near the prices that are being charged on the commercial side of the business. That is one of our clearest indicators that the prices that are commonplace in the marketplace are doing much more than providing a fair margin to hospitals, but actually feeding the beast, allowing them to buy up more of the system, build more of the system, and then really are oriented to to allow them to operate without any cost control at all. This is why MedPAC has concluded that a reasonably efficient hospital can run very close to Medicare, but because of lack of market constraints on the commercial side, they have they are experiencing cost levels that are actually much higher than Medicare because they've had no reason to constrain their costs. And I think what you're, Kevin Schulman put it very in an interesting way. He said, cost is endogenous. In other words, if I construct a palatial C-suite and I put a fountain in the lobby and I build all over the place, then my fixed costs are going to wind up being very high. And the, one of the big questions, even as we look at the data, is... Where did the money go? Sometimes you look at the margins that are implied by looking at what the break-even price would be and what's being charged. And you say, but bottom line, they don't seem to be making at that. They're making money, but they're not making that much money. Well, how are they spending that money? Where is that money going? I think this age of transparency requires us to ask the hard questions and bring more discipline back into the system. Hospitals always have a reason that as to why they need more money. And certainly today there is pressures because of nurses' salaries and whatnot. But even if you do the math on what those increases the nurses' salaries are and how much their expenses are, you still can't explain why they need to get paid what they're getting paid. We have to start having that very transparent and constructive conversation about bringing discipline back into how our health systems manage themselves and really their fiduciary responsibility to their communities, employers, employees, and their families. And part of that fiduciary responsibility, I'm understanding, is ensuring there are constraints relative to not building, not creating situations where there is so much money that's required to feed the beast, as you said, that it winds up actually bankrupting the community. And it already is. If we talk about this, the NASHP, and you said the commercial break-even, so commercial being what an employer is going to pay, an employer health plan or a union health plan, not Medicare or Medicaid. And you said the NASHP commercial break-even takes all factors into account. So if that hospital has lots of uncompensated care, in other words, there's a lot of uninsured people who are using the emergency room, 
It covers if the hospital is actually losing money on Medicare, it's figuring that out or losing money on Medicaid. You know, how many patients does that hospital serve in those different categories? Add and subtract and tote up the difference to figure out what percentage over Medicare. I'm assuming that's the net number here that they're going to wind up with, that this hospital must be paid this much over Medicare in order to break even. Is that how that works? Yeah, that's exactly right. On a national average, that commercial break even is 127% of Medicare. So if they were to charge something in the order of 127% of Medicare on average, it would break even. And this is built off of Medicare cost reports signed off by the CFO. What they are actually charging is well over 250% of Medicare. So it's a, and those are averages. There are hospitals that are charging 300, 400, 500, 600% of Medicare. You can't imagine that can be happening wholeheartedly. If you determine a fair price as a combination of some sort of reasonable markup on the commercial break-even and or what peer institutions are charging, that a fair price range nationally is something in the 140 to 200% of Medicare range. Most hospitals are well above that range. So I was understanding that the national commercial fair price is 127% of Medicare. I didn't understand the 140 to 200. So just to break even would be 127% national. Oh, I see. But again, assume that they added some margin on top of whatever they need to break even. And with that in mind, we think 140% to 200%, broadly speaking, is the fair price range You had raised a question earlier. You said, where's the money going? I think that's actually a fair question. Where is the money going? And it sounds like some of it is going to investment funds and et cetera. But on the other hand, it also sounds like because some of these hospitals have, uh, do I want to say overbuilt? Some of these hospitals haven't really thought hard about controlling costs. Some of it is just frittering away their community's dollars in inefficient ways? Yeah, it's probably all of the above. There's clearly an arms race in hospitals, just like there is in colleges and universities, right? Where you can't build a big enough atrium or have the the latest technologies, and there's no limit to how much can be spent at any given time. Now, that's not true of all hospitals, but for enough of them that I think it's a concern. Some of it is going to funds. There are hospitals with huge surpluses that are being bailed out in spite of the fact that they have these huge surpluses and big sources of donations and all of that. Frankly, one of the biggest concerns is many of these hospitals have used that war chest to purchase up other parts of the system, buy primary care, buy specialists. And as they do that, they don't do it with an eye towards taking costs out of the system. They do it with an eye towards feeding the hospital, putting more people into hospital bed. And again, that's not the health system I think we're trying to build. We're trying to build a health system based on value and health. And unfortunately, hospitals are conflicted with that motivation typically. How do we reverse those trends and start to get back on a more rational track and a more sustainable track for communities and employers and employees and their families? Yeah, it definitely does sound like a downward spiral. As you said, the more more money they have, the more money they have because they're able to use that money in ways that just cements their ability to control the market dynamics in ways that are favorable to themselves. As one potential, I don't know, bright spot, I was speaking with someone from a very well-integrated, clinically integrated network 
who said that because they are currently, in air quotes, losing money on most hospital inpatient stays, they now have a really good financial incentive themselves to keep patients out of their own hospital. I am sure he wasn't talking about knee replacements or some of the other electives, but it would be kind of an ironic twist if hospital inefficiencies actually led them to become more incented to truly do value-based care well enough to keep people out of their own hospital. Now, the work that Nashby did, it sounds like this was a very rigorous and a very difficult and in-depth kind of process. Is there anything that hospitals have said or could say in rebuttal to the math that Nashby produced? I think at this point, the onus is on hospitals to better defend why they need the money they have. These models have been built up from the Medicare cost reports, which the hospitals themselves have filed with the federal government under penalty of perjury. The analysis has been conducted by multiple different entities, including Rice University, Nashby. MedPAC has reached very similar conclusions looking at that same data, that an efficient hospital ought to be able to run very close to Medicare, and yet they don't. And then, of course, we also have the RAND data that helps us to understand what hospitals are actually pricing as a percentage of Medicare. And that's based on claims data that RAND has analyzed. All of these are pointing in the same direction, that there's a problem. There's a mismatch between what's needed and what's there. SAGE Transparency, the new transparency tool that the Employers Forum of Indiana put up, synthesizes this all across the country for hospitals everywhere and allows you to very easily get a sense of what are the market dynamics in any given market with any given hospital or health system across the country. The ability to actually do thoughtful analysis has never been more at our fingertips than it is today. If hospitals have a concern that data seems to be misleading, then it's time to start reconciling this data and their data. Because at the end of the day, I think purchasers have a right and a responsibility to know where the money is going and to ultimately pay a fair price. I think the reality is where there are market dynamics, we typically see prices in that fair price range. If hospitals insist on taking advantage of their monopoly or oligopoly power, which is clearly there in most parts of the country, we have to be open to treating them more like utilities. It's not that they're not essential. It's not that they don't do very important services for communities and employers, employees, and their families. It's that they can't take advantage of that market position to extract unfair prices. If we can't get fair prices through the existing mechanisms, we have to put other mechanisms, including regulatory oversight if necessary. There is lots of data at this juncture. There's the RAND data that you mentioned, which shows what the prices actually are. You've got this NASHB that shows what the kind of costs really should be. And then you have the SAGE Transparency Project which put all of this information all together so that it's very easy for employers to use. So it's certainly becoming more and more apparent that hospitals have a little, some again, have a little bit of uh, explaining to do (laughs) as they are charging way more than that. And of course, you also have the AHA and others who are shooting out one press release after another these days about how all these hospitals are 
losing money. So it's certainly not like they're at this juncture, super on board for this ride. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the truth is in the middle. There's, I'm sure there are hospitals that are losing money. I think we need to make a judgment call. Certainly our mission, our mission is not to put the hospital systems out of business. We need them. They're essential. But we also have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the services they provide are appropriate and at a fair price. And right now, I think we've lost confidence in the system. If there was a vote of confidence, our surveys suggest that those employers that have been exposed to this data are six to 10 times likely to say they're very concerned with the appropriateness and the defensibility of the prices they're being charged. And yes, absolutely. The hospitals are not a homogenous blob. Like there are certainly safety net hospitals and rural hospitals that are really struggling here. At the same time, we have hospitals who are not struggling. In more than a few hospital balance sheets, they include investment profit and losses mixed up with operating profits and losses. So like the hospital tossed a whole bunch of money into some venture funds and then counts it as an operating loss. But to your point, that's certainly not everybody. It's the well-resourced hospitals that have enough time and money to pull off some pretty disingenuous stuff like this. And the problem as these prices go up, the, the social contract with the community actually is broken because there's just more and more evidence that people are scared to go to the hospital. They're scared of how much it's going to cost. And therefore, if there's that much, I call it financial toxicity in the marketplace, then hospitals are actually diminishing their mission. So if I'm an employer then, and now I know this, right? Like I've looked at Sage Transparency, I've gone in there and I've figured out what the break even is for a hospital in my area that maybe many of my employees or union members go to. What now? Well, I think you have to look at what you can do from a market standpoint, from a program design standpoint, and what you can do from a policy standpoint. And from a program design standpoint, we've outlined a series of strategic options they can do. At the top of it is potentially consider a reference-based price strategy that you define what you're gonna pay in terms of what you deem to be a fair price. And you expect the hospitals to justify something different because right now, the other dynamics, the, the network negotiated fees, don't seem to be getting us necessarily to a fair price. The second might be to hold your plans accountable to something like that, meaning your intermediaries that you're relying on to get a fair price. Well, put in performance guarantees that suggest that they get closer to what you're expecting over time. And then thirdly, start steering people to health systems that are providing better value and steer away from those that don't. That can produce better prices. In fact, where you have tiered networks or limited networks, you might find prices that are in the 140 to 160% of Medicare. We also think that there's likely to be more engagement with health systems through coalitions, and that's gonna lead to pressures and uncomfortable conversations, but they're long overdue. And then finally, on the policy side, I think we have to be open to strategies that mitigate not just the increase in costs, but the level of costs or prices in the industry. And so we've outlined a series of policy activities that if we're not successful on the market side, we should be open-minded to. If a hospital is going to act like a monopoly, we have to treat it like a utility. You listed five action items here, and you also have a playbook that the National Alliance put out, which we'll link to in the show notes here. 
But number one, as you said, doing some sort of reference-based pricing. I'm assuming maybe that's a direct contract with the hospital. No, it's actually not a contract. It's a payment philosophy, effectively. It says we will pay a percentage of Medicare, which is deemed fair based on your cost structure and based on market dynamics, and that's what we'll pay. And if the hospital refuses to see your members, you'd have to ask them, why can't you operate on 200% of Medicare? All the data suggests you can. And in fact, we know you're contracting in more select scenarios at that level. Obviously, reference-based pricing hospitals are certainly, in, in air quotes, getting wise to this. I've heard more than once that you've got a hospital who says, oh, well, we don't have a contract with you and then tries to balance bill everybody. So it's I can definitely see how employers working in coalitions is going to be very important here. If you have this monopolistic, consolidated health system and then you're a small employer in the area, I could see that there's definitely a power dynamic, which is not in the employer's favor for sure. But then you also said as your second tactic to negotiate or hold plans accountable. So if you are using an ASO or a TPA to really be managing your ASO or your TPA and really as an employer, really watching what they are doing and how much they are paying. And then your third tactic was doing tiered networks and steering to health systems that may have higher quality at a fair price which of course is the first thing one of the first things that a consolidated health system is going to try to is going to try to do they're using their market power to eliminate employers and ASOs ability to steer so it's almost like every tactic that an employer might use to try to balance out the power dynamic or to try to create these market dynamics hospitals and they have very good business people in their c-suites who make it less and less possible for the employers to succeed with some of these things which is why i can see how we got to your fifth strategy here which is look at this from the policy side yeah we're in i'll say a battle it shouldn't be a battle it should be a conversation But the reality is when you get dismissed about your concerns, and that's what it feels like sometimes when you have a a very large entity, a very powerful entity saying, go away, we're happy with the existing system and we don't agree with anything you're saying. Well, then let's figure out how to change the dialogue in a way that is empowered by the data, the data that is now available and easily looked at and let's talk it through. Let's have a seat at the table. And some of that really comes down to the the public opinion, starting with the people who are paying the bills, the purchasers, the employers. Secondly, it also comes from the public opinion through the press. We need to change the dynamics within the press where the only press that comes out is empathetic to the health systems and not looking at the bigger picture about what is happening here with many health systems, not all health systems, but many health systems. We're convinced that we can create a more balanced dialogue in the in public opinion. If that doesn't lead to the pressures that are needed, then we're, we need to then engage with policymakers and talk about what can be done to create oversight of a system that has basically been left to operate on its own and has chosen a path that has led to runaway costs, the fastest growing part, not just of healthcare, but of the economy, hospital prices, hospital costs. I know that's gotten constrained during the pandemic, but what we don't want to do is get back to normal. What's interesting about this is when hospitals talk to their creditors, they boast 
about the control they have on pricing and margins they can achieve and all that. When they talk to the press, they cry poverty. And these two both can't be true. We're not talking about all hospital systems. But where there are abuses, we should be able to call them out and we should be able to act on those abuses. Policy interventions can go so far as to start treating hospitals as utilities. And that means regulating what they're doing and overseeing their management processes if they can't manage themselves. Well, I think to your point, you can't, nobody can have their cake and eat it too. If you want to be a nonprofit, you can't operate like a monopolistic business. In most parts of the economy where there is clear market domination and control, certainly in a limited region, there's some sort of oversight, some sort of check and balance. And unfortunately here, we've lost those checks and balance in most markets. And without checks and balances, either from the market, through the purchasers, or through regulators, then we get what we, we get what we deserve. We get a system that's out of control. And again, all this market consolidation has not led to lower costs and it has not led to better quality. Just with the perfect storm of some of these high deductible plans and with all the cost shifting that has gone to employees and the amount of out of pockets coupled with the rise in healthcare prices or hospital prices being, I think, 4x the rise of other every other benchmark service, that it's actually the employees themselves who are starting to be the point of constraint. Well, I couldn't agree more. The American public can no longer afford it. Mike, is there anything I neglected to ask you that you want to mention? The one last part of this that I think is underappreciated is how fundamental this is to the employer's role as a planned fiduciary. It's often underappreciated that employers don't just have a right to engage in this. They have a responsibility to make sure that the services that are being provided under their plans are reasonable, appropriate, and that they're paying a fair price for them. What these tools, what this playbook does is outline a strategy for getting that, turning the corner and starting to reverse this runaway train. And if someone would like to get that playbook. Yeah. So on on our website, nationalalliancehealth.org, you will find the playbook and it's in the public domain for anybody, including health systems, to take a look at it. And it's very transparent about what we think, what, how to look at the data, how to use the tools and what are some of the market strategies and policy strategies to start to move to a fair price. Mike Thompson, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks, Stacey. Really appreciate it. So let's talk about going over to our website and typing your email address in the box to get the weekly email about the show that has come out. Sometimes people don't do that because they have subscribed on iTunes or Spotify and or were friends on LinkedIn. What you get in that email is a full and unredacted, unedited version of the whole introduction of the show transcribed. There's also show notes with timestamps, just apprising you of the options that are available. Thanks so much for listening.